Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to? A special production of the Missouri Bar, a regular look at the legal system, and you. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farrah Fight. Hands up. How many people in this room have written their wills? I'm raising my hand, Bob. I have gotten mine up, so we're well above the national average. That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, That's because only three out of five Americans do have a will. Today, we're going to learn why planning for the future is so important to best protect your loved ones. And as usual, we have an expert with us. In this case, it's John Gunn with the Gunn Law Firm in St. Louis. That's right. John helps individuals and businesses in a variety of ways, including estate planning, probate administration and litigation, and trust administration and litigation. He's also the vice president of the Missouri Bar. Now, estate planning, I get, but John, in plain English, what is probate administration and litigation and trust administration and litigation? I think litigation has to do with lawsuits, but what do you mean by probate administration and trust administration? How much time do we have? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I, when I talk about probate administration, probate division uh, in every circuit court in the state of Missouri is the division that handles matters as they relate to probate issues. Probate issues... Primarily, the, the majority of the cases that any probate division is going to handle will be those associated with minors who have money. So this is any individual under the age of 18 who, because they're a minor, they have a legal disability. And if they get money over $10,000, they have to have somebody appointed to manage that money for them. Other disabled adults can also have a person appointed to a, make uh, health and personal care decisions for them, that's a guardian, uh, and to make financial decisions for them, and that would be a conservator. And then beyond the disability realm, we have decedents estates. And decedents estates would be an estate established for any person who passes away owning assets in their own name. And that's a very top-level thumbnail of what probate means. Um, administration would be assisting either the fiduciaries who are appointed by the court in looking after the assets of the persons for whom they're responsible, um, or per- potentially even the beneficiaries of, of a, uh, any estate, usually a decedent's estate, and protecting their rights and um, you know, supervising what is happening with the fiduciary who's appointed by the court, following the filings and making sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. Now, do you, when someone passes away and they have assets left behind, does that mean that every scenario goes to probate court, What you, as you just described, or um, are there ways to avoid that process? There are a number of ways to avoid the process, and that's where estate planning really comes into play. Most of the clients with whom I meet When I ask them why are they seeking an estate plan, most of them say they want to avoid probate, um, which is a laudable concern, avoiding probate. It can get expensive. It can get very time-consuming. It can have other ancillary impacts, many of which we probably don't have time to get into. But avoiding probate is is a laudable goal for anybody who's looking to do their estate plan. And you can do that through the use of a trust instrument, uh, the use of a transfer on death designation on an account, um, other non-probate transfers with real estate. You can do it with a beneficiary deed. There are a number of vehicles to use to avoid probate. Is, is age a factor? And when people uh, get do some estate planning, do you have to be 
does it just occur to people when they reach a certain age, hey, I ought to do this? What's crazy is I get clients who are in their early 20s who are fresh out of college in their first job who will contact me and say, I, I, I've got a job. I'm starting to accumulate assets. I need an estate plan. Okay, fine. Planners. It's, it's planners. That's exactly right. And it's never too early unless you're under the age of 18 because then you don't have the capacity to do it anyway. But I also have, as we were discussing before we got started, I've had clients who are well into their 60s, 70s, or 80s who have no plan at all. And it just occurs to them one day, hey, you know what, maybe I ought to do this. Or a friend suggested to them that they ought to look into it, or they had a child who was goading them into making sure that they had their affairs in order. So it's, it's incredible. I have, I have clients of all ages when it comes to estate planning. When you get somebody young, though, John, and, and they want to get started with estate planning, it, can you can you do that plan so it's flexible enough to last to last them for their lifetime, or is there a kind of a regular cycle where they need to come in and meet with you and update things? Most of the plans that I write are going to allow for a good deal of flexibility and a good lifespan. Um, however, there are certain things that are going to happen. It's just the nature of the human existence. Some of the people that you might name as trustees, for example. They could expire. They could become disabled. They could move away. You could have a falling out with them. So there are certain aspects of a plan that should be revisited periodically, somewhat regularly. I tell most of my clients, if you have a major life event, that's really when you want to look at it. If you have a child, (laughs) if you win the lottery, if you have something major happen in your life, you probably need to take another look at your estate plan. But in most respects, it's going to be flexible enough. And I'll give you an example of that. The trust that I write, if I write a trust for a married couple, for example, who don't have any children, but they plan on having children, I will usually incorporate some language into the beneficiary provision that says, if we have children, here's how the estate will be administered and here are the beneficiaries. If we don't, then here's what happens. Um, It's not unusual that I have clients who have one or more children, but they expect to have additional children. Same thing. You just split it up in accordance with however many children they might have at the time that they are both gone. Is estate planning, we've been talking about assets and money and leaving that behind, but can it be about more than just money? Sure. Sure. There are, uh, the, the easiest example of that would be a healthcare directive and a healthcare power of attorney. Um, at the Missouri Bar, we've got a great form for that that is publicly available on our website and that actually is the form that I use for clients um, and it provides for if um, a, a client can fill it out and indicate that if one or two physicians make the, makes the conclusion that they don't have the ability to make their own health care decisions they can appoint somebody else to make those decisions for them and then the directive portion takes the condition part just a little bit farther but allows the client to indicate exactly what sort of treatment they do not want to have if there's not a reasonable expectation that they're going to recover from the illness. So, yeah, I mean, estate planning, uh, people think about it as assets, but there are a lot of other parts of life that it can go into. Is there anything that shouldn't be included? I mean, I think of people with 
wanting to put their, their, their grandmother's quilt collection into an estate plan of some kind or their electric train collection from when they were nine years old. Is, is there anything that shouldn't be included in something like this? It just is too trivial. Great question. Uh, I, I, could, I could tell you a lot of things. What, what I see typically not included in a plan generally or what I try to keep out of it there are ways to plan for cars, for example, but cu- putting a car in a trust, most of my estate plans are going to include a trust. So I'm going to, I'm going to diverge from your question a little bit and come back to it. Can you tell us what a trust is and describe that? Surely. So a, a trust is an instrument that is created during the lifetime of the person for whom the plan is being prepared. That is, uh, it's really just a document that says, I'm the trustee. If I'm the grantor, I'm the I'm the client in this instance. I'm the trustee. I'm the beneficiary. So the trust is for my benefit. But I can identify who's trustee when I'm not able to serve anymore, and who the beneficiaries are after I'm gone. And then there's a whole lot of other language that gives authority to the to the trustee or the successor trustees as to what they're supposed to do, what they have to do, what they can't do, etc. And then we take assets during the during my lifetime in this instance as the client. We take assets, bank accounts, uh, brokerage accounts, real estate, uh, life insurance policies sometimes, at least uh, renaming the beneficiary, we put it all in the trust. And then once it's in the trust, you have a designated trustee who's going to be me as long as I'm able to do it in this instance. But if I can't do it anymore, or I don't want to do it anymore, and I resign, I have a successor trustee already named. So we're avoiding probate there because nobody has to go to court to get a court order to say, you can interact with these accounts. Because if those accounts are titled in the trust and the trust says, here's who the next trustee is, and they know that I'm not doing it anymore, then somebody's authorized to serve. So going back to the question, automobiles, oftentimes I sort of suggests that you don't need to put them in a trust because it's hard to sell a car out of a trust. People look at you like you got three heads saying, I don't know whose signature I need. Uh, I don't know who even to interact with, particularly if you're trading it in. So what I suggest to people do is when they buy new cars, uh, that they, and if they have a trust, that they indicate on the title application that it's transfer on death to the trust. Is that that? TOD initial that you'll see on a title? Correct. And sometimes it's TOD, sometimes it's POD, which is pay on death. Uh, And that's a non-probate transfer, but it's... Another thing that I sometimes recommend, and this is not a trivial asset, Bob, which is kind of Mm -hmm. what you asked, but Mm -hmm. I often recommend if people have a vacation home, that putting it in, in an estate plan can be... can turn out to be... Now, typically, the grantor the client is going to be long gone, but it can turn into a real nightmare for the people who are remaining and needing to manage the asset if it's in the trust. So do they suddenly then inherit the real estate taxes and all of those problems like that of something they might not have even wanted to begin with? Yeah, and it can be it can be that uh, there's one or more of the beneficiaries doesn't live in town and can't use the property. Uh, one or more of the beneficiaries has grown kids or no kids and is not going to use the property. Uh, one of the beneficiaries has more or less available assets than everybody else and can't maybe can't afford to pay some of the insurance and 
property taxes and things like that. I've had a, I've had a couple of cases where vacation homes were included in the trust and money was set aside to pay for a lot of the uh, the maintenance and the routine expenses, and the money just ran out, and there was no provision in those trusts as to what anybody was supposed to do. So nobody had any clue. We just had to kind of reach around in the dark. And so when someone inherits, um, you talked about that situation where someone ended up running out of money and then couldn't pay for these proceeds. So if there's still a mortgage on the house that you might inherit, or if there are taxes due or credit that hasn't been paid back, um, is that become the responsibility of the person who inherited everything? In short, yes. A lot of those things are going to be debts that are, will run with the real estate. So real estate taxes, for example, the county that's assessing those taxes has a right to foreclose on the house if they're not paid. So if they if they want to keep the house, then yeah, the owner's going to have to pay that. Um, mortgages are a little bit different. So if, if, if mom and dad are both gone and somebody inherits, and son, for example, inherits a house, and that house has a mortgage associated with it, well, the event of death of the second of mom and dad to die probably is going to be an event of default. And as an event of default, the lender, who probably won't foreclose because they just want to keep, as long as the money keeps coming in, they probably don't care a lot. But technically, son in that instance really probably has to get the loan uh, refinanced in his name so that he's paying it. Because if the house is in his name, the loan's going to have to be in his name. And so... Everything's got to kind of shift. If I if I inherit something in a trust like this, do I have the right to refuse it? And what happens if I do? You do. There's a statute in Missouri that allows for um, any beneficiary to disclaim their inheritance interest. It's got to be done within a specified period of time. They have to have not accepted any benefit from the asset that they're disclaiming. And it's final. And all that happens is what will happen to that asset is, I believe that this is right, it will be administered as if you, if you're disclaiming, you predeceased the grantor. You predeceased the person who was giving you that gift. So it, it, in some instances, that will go back to the statute and a statute will figure out who gets it next or who splits it. In some instances, that will go back to the trust instrument, and the trust instrument will indicate who it is that will ultimately get that asset. Now, trust instruments are contracts, too, so they can do something totally different from what the statute does. So it could be that if you disclaim it, it's not that it's going to be, you'll be treated as pre-deceased, for example, and it will go to your kids. The trust might say, if you disclaim it, or if you do predecease, it goes to a charity, and that's the end of it. So trusts are very, very flexible in that regard, and that you you can really make them say whatever you want. So if I inherit a timeshare from somebody, and I have no desire to have a timeshare, I just say no, who does? I I just, yeah, <laughs> but then I I just say no, I don't want this thing, and then it becomes the trust responsibility to dispose of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, timeshares. <laughs> tell you what, this is I've had more than my fair share of timeshares. Yeah, this is a whole program we could probably do. <laughs> yes, probably. Yeah, it would. If you disclaimed it, then the trustee would have to determine. Okay, well, then who's next? Mm -hmm. 
And if that person disclaims it, well, then the trustee would have to say, okay, well, who's next? And if the trust ends up getting stuck with it, then the trust will be on the hook for paying whatever continuing expenses there are. And where, where that gets really hairy, and this goes to the trust administration portion of, of what I do, where that gets hairy is if the trustee distributes all the cash and they still have this timeshare and there's money that is supposed to be going into the timeshare, the timeshare company theoretically could sue the trustee and say, well, you, why'd you distribute all the money? It was there to pay us. I don't know how successful that would be, but that would be a concern of concern of mine in that instance. Yeah, so it wouldn't go on be sold on the courthouse steps at some point. It might be. Some of those timeshares aren't deeds, so they're not they're not real estate interests. Some of them are just side contracts, as if they're leases. So if it is a deed, and sometimes the deeds are restricted, and you can't really sell it that way. So it, timeshares are a big pain, and they're none of no two are the same. Um, it's always going to depend on the jurisdiction as well. You know, a timeshare in Branson is probably not going to be treated the same as a timeshare in Hawaii. I don't know Hawaii's laws. I know Missouri's laws. So they're they're all different, and no 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 lawyer who does what I do cares for them very much. <laughs> so it sounds like if you end up being the trustee or trust, if I have the terminology correct, that you could end up actually having to do quite a bit of work in helping distribute assets, take care of them, if someone refuses them, finding a new direction for that per the trust. Um, are there rewards <laughs> for doing all this in that responsibility, or is there just sort of the risk and extra work that you've been tapped to do since you're the responsible person that was selected? The Missouri Uniform Trust Code provides that a trustee shall be entitled to reasonable compensation for his or her services. Don't ask me what that means because I don't know. Um, however, the trust can provide what somebody can be paid to. So acting as trustee, yeah, you're going to assume a pretty decent amount of liability. Of course, that depends on the, on the assets. If you have residential or, pardon me, rental real estate, for example, a big office building and it's owned by the trust, yeah, that's kind of scary. That has a lot of potential liability attached to it. Um, but the trust instrument is usually going to provide for what, what sort of fees somebody can get paid. Sometimes it's just going to say whatever is reasonable. Sometimes it will say uh, hourly rate if it's a professional like an accountant or a lawyer. Um, sometimes it will refer specifically to a fee schedule of a bank. We see that an awful lot. And so even if it's an individual trustee, they get paid what a bank would have been paid. Uh, sometimes it will say if it's a family member, they don't get any fees at all. And by golly, if it's a family member, they're not getting paid. So it, it really, it really kind of depends. Sometimes there is a reward. Sometimes there won't be a reward. But if there is payment, it is ordinary income on which the, the, for which the trust is going to take a deduction, and the trustee is going to have to pay income tax on it. If somebody has credit card debt or some other debts, is that just something normally handled by the trust and the checks are written and cleared that up and then you move on? You're asking me just loaded questions <laughs> with both barrels. <laughs> it's, it's, it, I feel like I'm, I'm saying this in a lot of different ways, but yeah. it depends. The, the trust document, trust documents, what they're usually going to say with regard to debts of the decedent are that those debts shall be paid by the trust 
if they're legally enforceable. Well, in order to be legally enforceable, most practitioners would tell you, they have to be enforceable in the probate court. If to be enforceable in the probate court, an estate, number one, has to be opened, and an estate has to be opened within one year of the date of death of the decedent, and a claim must be filed. And there are different statutes governing when claims can be filed, but most of us look at one year from the date of death. So if an estate's open and a claim's filed, the trust can, is going to pay that debt. Sometimes the trustee is just going to pay all the debts anyway and say, well, that's what mom wanted to do. So I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to wait to see if they actually formalize their claim. But oftentimes, creditors will not formalize their claim. And if they don't, depending on how the, what the wording in a trust is, and I'm going to talk about estates in a second, the trust may not pay and they may not get paid. I had an estate recently, not a trust. This is just an estate and there was a will. And there were credit cards, three different credit cards that added up to about $90,000 in credit card debt. Wow. Claims were filed. The estate was open. Claims were filed. They're just sitting there. Now, I know as a practitioner, <laughs> creditors are not going to like to hear this, but it's true. I know as a practitioner that credit card companies are really, really bad about showing up for hearings and proving their claims. So I noticed these $90,000 of credit card debt for hearing, and I show up fully expecting somebody's going to appear. They may not have the documents they need to prove their case. I might have some technical objections. I'll probably have to pay them something out of the estate. Nobody showed up. So I asked the court to dismiss all three claims for failure to prosecute, and he did on the spot. They were done. $90,000 that went begging. We had it. I had the money to pay. I just asked them to come in and prove their claim, and they didn't do it. So, yeah, debts get resolved in the regular course, but oftentimes those people who are owed the debts don't know the law and the rules well enough to enforce their rights. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. Where there's a will, there's a way, right? Well, with a twist of legalese, let's bring that old saying around to today's topic. Here it goes. Where there's a will, there's a way. A way to control your money and your property after you die. That sounds serious, and it is. Why should the law let you control anything after you die? On the other hand, the law does provide that your property will go somewhere when you die. Typically, state laws tell courts how and to whom a dead person's property is to be distributed. If you have other ideas than those that are specified in the law, you can specify your wishes in a will. More formally, you might have seen this in movies and books, called a last will and testament. In early times, a will provided for real estate and a testament disposed of, real, of personal property, including money. Now they're in one document, last will and testament. There are ways to avoid having your survivors go to court to sort out your belongings. Trusts, for instance, that are part of what lawyers call an estate plan. Most of us, of course, don't like to think about death, especially our own. I guess as a joke, I could remind you that throughout history, the human death rate has stayed the same, one per person. Or perhaps I could remind you that the two great certainties are death and taxes. But the good news is that there really is little or no taxation for most of us when we die. 
you have to be really, really rich for the federal government to tax you. And the states have mostly dialed back based on what clever politicians call death taxes. So the Grim Reaper eventually will find each of us. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the tax collector probably will not be with him. Legalese. Well, I hate to ask you this as long as I'm alive. Can I pull this same kind of thing? No, because your credit, number one, will take a, an enormous hit, which you're not going to care about when you're dead. Yeah. Um, and they can go after you. They can drag your rear end into court. It's really hard to do that with a, with a person who's deceased. You mentioned in that particular scenario that there was just a will and not a trust. And do you need a will to go along with your trust, or are they two separate mechanisms? Great, Another great question. I always have a will to go along with a trust, and there are a couple different reasons for that. One, if my client or clients have a minor child or children, the will is where a guardian for that child will be nominated if both mom and dad are dead. So that, that is a very important element, and that or the will is where you do that. Uh, the other thing is preparing. Most wills are going to most wills if there's a trust involved are going to say everything just pours over into the trust. So if it has to go through probate and there is an estate, everything goes back to the trust anyway. So then all you, then you know making changes is easy. You do them in one place with the trust. And I like to have a will because it will serve as a safety net for any asset that might fall through the cracks. Those cars I was talking about, for example, if nobody gets around to putting a TOD on them, well, then they might have to go through probate. Well, then where do they go? Well, if the will says they go to the trust, they all end up in the trust anyway. Can I write my own will? You can. I think it won't surprise you to hear me say as a lawyer that it's a terrible idea. Um, there are, and in Missouri in particular, there are a lot of technical elements that must be observed in writing a will. Uh, some to make it valid and some to ease the administration if it needs to be used in court. But you've got to have witnesses um, those, those witnesses have to be there and watch you sign. Uh, so there, there are technical elements that, that need to be observed. And I see, I have seen over my career a good number of wills that people have prepared themselves that just weren't valid. And we had to ignore them. They just didn't, they weren't going to do anybody any good. Why, why weren't they valid? They weren't executed appropriately. Okay. They didn't have witnesses. Uh, they weren't dated some of them didn't have a uh, disposition of the assets. They kind of were aspirational. They talked about, here's what I'd like to see happen here and there, but it never says, here's what shall happen. Um, I, believe it or not, I've seen some that seemed pretty clear to me that they were signed after the person died, so we weren't going to use those. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a risky business trying to do any of this stuff without at least the advice of a lawyer. Well, how about the television commercials I see? Or sometimes in a bookstore, I'll see a book about write your own will or we send off for this will kit and, uh, and, and do it that way. Are those valid? Provided they're executed appropriately, they're probably valid, yes. But the bigger question is, are they going to do what you expect them to do? And that's where the advice of a lawyer understanding unique circumstances that might apply to the client the client's specific desires, uh, what they want to accomplish, 
risk areas. I mean, the problem with a lot of those forms is that they, they don't ask all the questions. They may not ask, do you have a child with special needs, which sends everything into a different direction. Um, so that's the risk is that you don't have, you don't have a brain actually working on it and thinking through what aspects of this plan are going to be important and what might we turn on, turn off, what language might I put in here that's not already there, what might I take out, etc. And then furthermore, those types of plans are, they're, they're hard to amend. Um, Imagine, if you will, that, that somebody's got a, a trust that they've had for a long time. Uh, they had a lawyer prepare it, but they don't go back to the lawyer to amend it. And instead, they just type something up, and they maybe they want to amend it, but they just type it up, and they don't call it amendment. They just copy everything off the old trust. Is it an amendment? I, I mean, I don't think it probably is if it doesn't call itself an amendment, and that is... That's a problem. That's one of the problems of doing it yourself or even doing it through one of those companies that you're seeing advertising is they don't they don't know what your life is. Is there a risk that the language wouldn't comply with Missouri law? There's always there's always that risk. That risk is going to be greater with respect to wills than it will be with respect to trusts. Wills is the classic testamentary document. Um, and I, this is really true nationwide. There's a lot of jurisprudence around wills and, and their credibility and their reliability. Trusts are a little bit different. In order to create a trust, it's a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got you, to comply with, the, with just the basic elements of what a will, a trust, a power of attorney. Powers of attorney have very specific things that they have to include in order to be valid in Missouri. So yeah, a lot of those things, if they're not state-specific, you can miss on them. Are there any limits to who I can leave my, my estate to? Can I leave it to my cat or my dog? I hear this We've go on every We've seen stories about that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I, mean, I guess, if that's really what you want to do, Bob. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you can. What people will typically do, if they, if they go to a lawyer and say, I want to leave everything to my dog, I think, I think one of the and I've had these conversations, I think one of the questions is, well, why? And what happens if the dog dies and there's money left? Then who gets it? Uh, who's going to take care of the dog? What sort of access are they going to have to the money? So all of that probably would go in. It's probably not just a, you know, when I'm gone, everything I have goes to Fluffy. There's probably a lot of detail around that, that it's there for Fluffy and to maintain Fluffy and to buy Fluffy jewels or whatever. Uh, but there's going to have to be a human involved. Fluffy can't go out and buy her own food. If I'm someone who maybe thinks that I don't have enough assets really to take the time to do a will and a trust, what would you say to that? Is there another option um, besides that so that they can make sure that their wishes are carried out? There are there are other options. Yes. What I would tell you if you came in and told me that, I would ask you. I don't. I would not want to know the value of your assets. The only real question I ask, and this may change from time to time, but with respect to value and net worth, I only really ask that to determine whether 
tax planning is needed. And the estate tax law has changed a lot recently so that I don't usually even start thinking about whether tax planning is needed unless somebody's got five million bucks. So most people don't. I know I don't. Um, so what I would tell you is I would want to know the type of assets that you have because sometimes the type of assets that you have will dictate easily tell me you need a trust and here's why and we need to do the full deal. But what I would also tell you is I've only done, I've been doing this for about 20 years and I think I have prepared estate plans without a trust maybe four times. And usually that's because, well, let's talk about what the alternatives are. We talked about transfer on death. Transfer on death, joint accounts, you could name your husband a joint owner on your account, for example. It's a joint account, you die, it's his money. Avoids probate, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't contemplate what happens if he dies first. Well, now it's going through probate. If you don't have a plan, you don't have a, you, there's, no, there's no allowance for that contingency. When, when I prepare a trust in particular, wills can do some of this too, but in a trust, you can really anticipate a lot of those contingencies, no matter how remote they are in possibility but you can anticipate them and plug the gaps in advance to make sure, okay, everything's going to get to where it's supposed to go, no matter the order of death, no matter whether anybody's disabled, no matter how young anybody is or how old anybody is, it's all going to get to where it's supposed to go, ultimately. So I, and th those four times that I did do estate plans without a trust is because it made sense. And I... I'm not going to demand my clients include a trust, but after I'm finished explaining to them the, the, the positives and the potential costs if they don't have it, it's just that every other time they said, well, that's, that sounds right. That's what I want to do. For those few times that I didn't do it that way, it's because it's like, like three generations, uh, no spouses, no siblings, um, and everything just trickles down. And I think in the, in the one instance I can remember, it was just a house and a checking account and a car, and that was it. And mom named, had already named son and then grandson as beneficiaries on the house and the bank account, and son was on the car with her. So we did a will, and that was it. And a power of attorney. Got it. We just didn't do a trust. John, do you very often hear people say, I can't afford to do this? And I can't Sometimes. Afford, I can't afford a lawyer to do this for me. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes, and that, that may inform for them whether they want to do the full estate plan that I might be recommending or if they want me to try to find the next best way to do it that won't cost as much. And I think I do what I think most lawyers do is that if somebody needs something and they can't afford it, we figure out a way to get it done anyway. Is it something that's essentially a one-time expense? So when you hire the lawyer to create it, since you said that it can be flexible going forward, I think, I think most lawyers do that, handle that a little bit differently. Um, I know of one lawyer, at least, who told his clients, I'm going to bill you once and then I'll give you a lifetime of amendments. I don't think most do it that way. I think most probably do it pretty close to the way that my office has always done it, which is we, we'll prepare a plan. If there needs to be an amendment, 
and I'll talk to anybody about what what they're doing, what they might need, what they're thinking of doing, and I won't charge them for it. But if we do an amendment, or if we do a new power of attorney, or if we do even a new trust, which sometimes happens, for example, if somebody inherits money as opposed to has money with a spouse, there, it's, the fee is not going to be the same as it would have been if we were creating everything anew, but it just... There's a lot of advice provided without an additional payment, but if there's new planning and new documents put in place, usually it's going to be another charge. If someone's married and the spouse dies, um, what are the what are the surviving spouse's rights if there's a will and a trust, and if there is, or if there isn't, for that matter? I'd ask you how long we have again, but um, <laughs> spouses have. A whole bundle of rights. So if a if there's an estate, a surviving spouse, a minor child has the same rights. A minor child who's dependent on the decedent has the same rights as a surviving spouse in that they have a right to the exempt property, which is basically the household furniture and furnishings in the house. They have a right to the family Bible. They have a right to one automobile. Um, they also have a right to a homestead allowance, which is half of the estate, not to exceed $15,000. And they have a right to a um, family allowance, which is one year's worth of support. Those allowances are going to come basically off the top after administrative expenses. So th those are rights that are, they're just there. Um, a spouse can also have a right, have has some rights in the event that there's a will and the will doesn't provide for them the way that the law would. Either the will is written after they're married and they're not included, or they're not included as much as the law might anticipate that they should be, or the will is written before they're married, uh, and either they're not in it or they're not in it to the point where they should be. They can, they can always contest the will outright. They can take an elective share, or they can take a share as an omitted spouse. I'd start talking about the math on how all those things work, but I would definitely get it wrong, so I'm not even <laughs> going to try. Um, spouses have a number of other rights, too, which I, I'm involved in litigation now that implicates some of these. Spouses have a right for property not to be transferred without their knowledge and consent um, during the marriage. So it's it, there are events where a spouse might learn after a wife dies, for example, a husband might learn that wife was giving their money away. Well, it, it, a husband probably has a cause of action against her estate if he's not already getting everything else, maybe even against the people who received it, depending on the circumstances, to get it back because a spouse can't do that. So there are a, there's, there's a whole bundle of spousal rights that we analyze every time anybody comes in here if we anticipate or, or smell that there might be something going on. Do prenuptial agreements ever enter into this very complicated procedure later on? And do, do they, what weight do they carry when it comes time to settle estates? Pre- and post-nuptial agreements are typically going to come into play when their validity is at issue. The validity of those types of agreements usually is going to be challenged when one of a couple things happens. One is if there's an allegation that all of the assets of one party or the other was not disclosed prior to the execution of the agreement, which is one of those uh, basic elements of a valid 
pre or post nuptial agreement is that you got to have. A, and understand everybody needs to have a full understanding of what assets are going to be at issue in the agreement. The other is that both participants and both signatories are supposed to be represented by independent counsel, or at least have the opportunity to be represented by independent counsel. If that opportunity is not there, uh, it's not terribly unusual. I don't think either of you will be surprised that there are cases when a uh, couple is getting married, and at the last minute, one spouse turns to the other and hands them a piece of paper and says, oh, by the way, I need you to sign this. And the, the spouse who's signing may not have any benefit of having a lawyer look at it, may not have the benefit of the time to even have a lawyer look at it, because I've had cases where they are literally on their way to the courthouse to get married, and the papers are exchanged. So that's where those disputes typically arise. Uh, and there could be large battles over how an estate or a trust is going to be divided and ultimately distributed based on whether that agreement is valid. Yeah, we actually learned a little bit about that in our love and marriage episode, um, talking about prenups a few weeks ago. Love and marriage, love and marriage. Go together like a horse. John, we talked about trust a lot at the start of the show. There's a phrase, though, that I did not hear us talk about, and that is revocable living trust. Is that a separate category? No, all the trusts that I've been talking about are revocable living trusts. They're trusts that are created during the lifetime of the grantor, and they are revocable. So most trusts that we do are going to have a provision that allows the grantor or grantors, if it's a married couple, for example, in a joint trust, to change it, to change the terms, to change the beneficiaries, to change the trustees, to revoke the whole thing and throw it out. The, there are occasions where people will, it may be beneficial or advantageous to have an irrevocable trust. An irrevocable trust is one that's, it's set. You draft it, you sign it, you fund it, and it's it's set. It cannot be changed. Um, usually, those irrevocable trusts are going to be created in instances where there's some tax element, either income or estate tax uh, element that you're trying to take advantage of the tax laws. John, we talked at the beginning of the show how three in five Americans do not have a will or living trust. And... Um, Research shows that 50% of them say the reason they don't is because they just haven't gotten around to it. What would you say to someone who's listening who hasn't done this yet um, and is maybe thinking about it? What advice would you give? Get around to it. None <laughs> of us have the slightest clue as to whether or when we're going to get hit in the head with a steel beam and not be able to administer our assets any longer. That really is, from a, an estate planning perspective and a, and a cost perspective, that's a terrible scenario because in that scenario, if somebody's disabled and they have assets to administer and they have no planning documents, they're going to end up in court. And the court is going to appoint somebody to administer those assets, and that person is going to have to have a bond, which is an insurance policy against them doing bad stuff with the money. That's going to have a cost. They're going to have to ask the court's permission to spend every dime. That's going to have a cost. They're going to have to prepare an accounting every year to the court to explain exactly what happened during that year, every penny that came in, every penny that went out. That's going to have a cost. 
there's a it's fairly simple to plan around that and most plans are going to going to address very specifically this this idea of of uh, incapacity and disability but also death the times now so anybody asks me and Bob, you just didn't ask it the right way, but if anybody asks me, when should I get my estate plan done? Now. It's always now. There's no, there's really no reason to wait because tomorrow can be too late. You can't know. So it really comes down to just, comes down to what you can do now in order to protect your loved ones in the future. Correct. Well, John, we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us today. Thanks very much for having me. I loved it. You've been listening to Is It Legal To, a podcast service of the Missouri Bar. We're glad to have had John Gunn with us, a St. Louis lawyer who reminds us that now is the time to get our estate plans in place. Thank you for joining us, John. If you're wanting even more information on wills and trusts, we invite you to visit MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find our probate law resource guide. You can also find the free durable power of attorney for healthcare and advanced directive form that John mentioned at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. We've been talking about the ways today's laws let us leave our assets to those we care about. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar's Citizenship Education Director, is here to fill us in on the right to private property and how it shaped our Constitution from the very beginning. If you bring together a room full of people and ask, hey, what does the Constitution protect? They will almost certainly list what we think of as individual liberties. That's not wrong, but it's not complete. For while our Constitution is intended to allow people to think for themselves and to be free from arbitrary governmental action, it's also designed to allow people to be free to enjoy and exercise their property rights without the unwarranted intrusion of the government. The father of the Constitution, James Madison, wrote in Federalist 54, Government is instituted no less for the protection of the property than of the person of individuals. And as the University of Chicago's The Founders Constitution notes, although the term property is conspicuously missing from the original Constitution, that hardly bespeaks its indifference. Taxes, duties, imposts, excises, lands, commerce, bankruptcies, bills of credit, the exclusive rights of authors and inventors, contracts, debts, and engagements. All matters of explicit constitutional provision manifestly pertain to property. You heard that right. The word property does not appear in the original Constitution, but it was central to our ideas about government. Professor David Upham reminds us that it was a threat to property rights in the form of taxation without representation that initiated the crisis that led eventually to independence. Moreover, it was largely the undermining of property rights by state legislatures under the Articles of Confederation that prompted the framing of a new national constitution that would protect the individual right to property against infringement by national and state government power. We are well served to remember these historical realities. That's because a government that can arbitrarily seize property from its citizens can take other important rights away from the people. Once the government gets a taste for taking away rights, it's not going to stop. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments help protect against that by providing that you cannot be deprived of life, 
liberty, or property without fair treatment through the judicial system. It is no accident that property is on that list, and its inclusion with concepts such as life and liberty speaks volumes about its constitutional significance. Estate planning is not to be dismissed as the simple filing of papers to pass on our assets. Rather, it is one of the most frequently used and essential examples of individuals in our country exercising their constitutional rights. Nothing further, Your Honor. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. 